So joining us today is Kevin Monahan, who for many years has been involved in the design, build, and operations of several data centers, specifically in the financial sector, although he's recently made a transition over to the dark side, to the other <laughs> side, maybe today, as a provider of a data center services. So I want to welcome you, Kevin. It's great. Thank you. Talk, talk. Thank you. Uh, so what we wanted to talk about is kind of how we've evolved to where we're at today with data centers and some of the things that you and I discuss frequently, which is what people are doing or maybe what they're not doing, right? How, how data centers have scaled, have grown. You've seen it from a different perspective than most people I know, because not only do you know the infrastructure, the IT equipment, but you know the network as well. And, and that's pretty rare. So. I know when, when you and I worked together many years back. Many. At the bank. We worked in older facilities, right? And, and you experienced a lot of that and moved into newer facilities. So I'd like to get your perspective just on how the data center has grown and transitioned into what the current state is and ultimately where we think we need to be. Yeah. For me, I take you back to the latter parts of the 90s. When I first got involved with data centers, I'm actually a member of UUNet, Unix to Unix Technologies. I was one of their techs that took care of the, the central, central regions. And if you, for those who don't know UUNet, UUNet was the first superhighway. It was back, back, back down in, Ber in Berkeley, where prior to UUNet forming, they sent the first email, college to college. It was the first time done. Two hubs were set up, sent it. This is what started this whole thing known as the internet today. And we were known as the first superhighway. Everybody peered to UUNet. And to tell you a little funny story, it was talk about the, the evolution of networks, the evolution of cabling, and the evolution of how data centers were formed. We got this new device called a Juniper. And for those of you who don't know Juniper, Juniper was a breakaway from Cisco. Three of the, the, the head scientists or main guys, I don't remember who they were at this point, broke away and created this thing called Juniper. It was going to be a competitor now of Cisco. Cisco still has the market. But Juniper was doing some things that were different. And we got this new big box. I had to install it. And I'm, I'm like, you're really excited about it. I, I, I fly to California to learn about this thing. And I got to go and run around the, the nation installing them and upgrading the unit's new backbone. And I noticed it had the RJ45 for T1s. We we're still doing T1s back then. They were the main, there was more T1s than anything else. Then it had T3s. Then it had these funny little square things with fiber connected to it. And I didn't know, I didn't know what I, I'm, I started with T1s and T3s. And I'm looking, he's like, man, and then this guy's going, yeah, here's your T1s. Here's your T3s. This here's an OC3. And I went, oh man, an OC3. What's an OC3? <laughs> I had no idea what it was, right? I had no idea about now the fiber was coming into this. Then you move all the way forward. I mean, we've gone to, we're, we're at the edge of things. We're going to five gig just on our cell phones, 10 gigabytes per second download. 4G is one gigabyte. So you see just from that point, of not even understanding fiber yet to a point of now we're, we're doing 10 gigabytes per second on something that's not even wired anymore. And then you look at hyperscales, you look at, as you said, in the financial industry, we, we were very latency sensitive. You know, I ended up learning that if I have this right in my head, laser travels of a centimeter, it takes 300 and I'm going to get my numbers wrong, 300, 370 picoseconds to travel. I'm I got that all wrong. It's uh, let's change that. Now, now we're latency sensitive in, in this industry, in, in the in, in the financial industry, and you start to learn that a meter of fiber is five point four xxx nanoseconds of latency. That's how deep we've gotten in how we're doing our networking and how we're functioning. If you're talking about a hedge fund where they're going after 
high frequency trading that you have to know nanoseconds. We find out there's about a meter of fiber on the back plane of a Cisco, which is now obviously about 5.4 XXX nanoseconds of latency. You start adding this all up and now you know exactly how long it takes your packet to get from point A to point B and then point, then point B back to point A. You can judge it in nanoseconds now. That's how critical some of those applications have gotten in the industry. And this is going back what the days that you did where we they sent an email to Berkeley and it was a huge uproar. Everyone was so excited to a point now we're doing nano and picoseconds and understanding how our packets flow through the system. When I left UUNet, I left with a, 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 an incredible man named Johnson Agaboa, who uh, was basically lead scientist at UUNet. He was the grandfather or created, I'm not sure, a thing called MPLS, multiplexing labeling switching. That enabled us to have a video conference, and this cracks the young people up. We were, had a, a, a setup in San Francisco, had a setup in, in Virginia. We were the first ones ever to use half a T1, right? We did a video conference, no delays, no shadows, no skips. It was the first time it was ever done through a, through a company that we built called Broadband Office and Zephion Networks. And it was done through MPLS. In, in the old days, you had to go through every single pop, get to A to B. Well, MPLS enabled you to skip a bunch of pops, then regenerate your packet here, skip a bunch, regenerate your packet here, and so on. So you skipped all this latency, you removed it. And so again, latency was, was becoming more and more important, not only for going ahead in the high frequency, but just to get a video conference like we are today. We're seeing ourselves pretty much in real time. That, that's due to MPLS and other things, but MPLS was the first time we ever did that. And so it, the evolution from, from UUNet to broadband to getting into high-frequency trading has been absolutely astounding, interesting. It's just been fascinating. And, and to see where it's going today with CPU versus GPU. CPU is fast as what you have on your computer today, but GPU is just, it's, it's astounding how fast this, they can process data and give you information almost immediately. So that, that, and that's how we get these Zoom calls going. And, and we look at, I know Meta has built the Metaverse, which is AI-backed network. It's an own separate network that they use. It's not on production. And all the latency will be eliminated. All, all of the data will be dedicated to this metaverse. So it's a completely separate network. So when you go from the beginning stages of the 90s to where we are today, and to the fact that I can do so much more with my smartphone, and my smartphone is actually more smarter than I am, it makes me wonder, what's AI coming in? It's fascinating to me. I think the industry is fascinating. I think data centers have been fascinating to me for as long as I can remember. I got involved in them, like I said, in the 90s, and nobody knew what data centers were back then. And I stayed with it because I just, I was always fascinated by them, how they were building, how they were changing, whether it was both, most back, back then was Colos were just coming into fruition. When UUNet was formed, this company called e Equinex was formed. Equal Exchange, that's what Equinex is. They used to get upset because nobody could get in, that the pops were not giving people access, not giving people lines. There was a long wait time to get something hooked up. The internet was just starting to grow. There's a lot of investors, people wanted money. So Equinex got formed out of this. And it was equal, equal exchange. They got created. UUNet was created. MFS was created. All these different companies were created to help build the internet we see today. And it's global. It's, you can't kill the network. You can blow up a node. It doesn't matter. That, that it'll just reroute itself another way. It's a spider. It's a spider web. It is so interconnected. It is everywhere. And I, I think there's more to come. Fascinated to see where 5G takes us, a real-time application in, in, mic, in millimeter waves. That's going to be a fascinating adventure. I think we'll be long retired, Gary, <laughs> before we really see this go the way it's going to go. And where AI is going to go, I don't know yet, but it's, it's going to be fascinating to see. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly changed the world that we're in, right? It has. How, how do you see it affecting us in terms of how data centers are designed, designed today? 
My biggest, it's funny, I, I know there's companies out in, in the high desert, New Mexico, that build data centers. That's a weird place. Some of them in or, are in Oregon. Some of them are in some very strange places. They're doing that for free cooling. That they're, they're getting smarter because water is my biggest fear right now and how data centers are still being designed using water. I thought 10 years ago, the Department of, of, of Energy would start shutting down the use of heavy water usage for data centers. I really did. We talked about that back in the, I think it was early 2000s at the Uptime Green Symposium in New York. We expected it then. That was probably 15, almost 20 years ago that that took place. And we were warning each other that it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. You might have to switch to DSX, which is your air conditioning. A lot of firms did, but a lot didn't because of the cost. It was still cheaper to use water. In New Mexico, for example, it's obviously it's a high desert. It gets very cold at night. It gets very hot during the day. So there is a lot of free cooling available, but they're still using water. The Rio Grande is drying up. The Colorado River is drying up. So it makes me wonder, uh, when is the department going to really come after the water guzzling industries? And the data centers are one of them. Yeah. And I, sure. yeah. But there are a lot of other options there. One of the, the previous conversations I had with Rich Warner, you remember Rich? Yeah. Uh, talked about free cooling and a build in, in Denver where free cooling saved approximately 60% of the cost of cooling the facility, right? So, yeah, definitely where you're in the, the desert environment. And, and while that cooler environment exists at nighttime, you should take advantage of it, right? So let's, let, let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the tools and how you've seen those tools grow these days, right? For, with the facilities, with the technology growing. Chris, I've always known you as a very progressive person. I think in most cases, we try to use common tools, but in almost all cases, we struggle to do that for, for many reasons, right? You have, and, and we, we dealt with you in that realm in, in, in asset management, right? Where you have multiple tools that do different levels of asset management, right? The groups that use it look at it a little bit different. So you try and bring those tools to a common point where it helps you speak a common language. But it's still a challenge that we have in the data centers today or in, in oh, no, no, I agree. One of the biggest challenges I have today is one of the biggest challenges I had years ago when I, when I met Asset View and bought Asset View into my world. My, my logistics team today is all paper. And it was so funny. I, I asked my man, warehouse manager, I says, I need a full inventory of everything you have. Well, two weeks, three weeks later, like, geez, it's taking a long time. He throws a stack of paper on my desk and says, here's your inventory. I, says, <laughs> I wanted to cry. Right. I said, well, how many fat fingers are, are in here? How much, how much stuff is wrong in here? And so I explained an RFID system that I use with, for asset view at Citadel, which we in, installed globally, so almost, I think 80 some sites globally, we put it everywhere. It was a high, high success. I'm looking to do that where I am today because I can't do manual just in logistics and asset control, just, just the physical assets. You know, we do a lot of, in hyperscale, you do a lot of OFC owner, owner, owner supplied contracts installed. C CFCI, contractor furnished, contractor installed. And, but we have a warehouse and the hyperscale has a warehouse, but we have to receive a lot of things. And we're receiving in paper and, and, and there's no scanning. A scanning is at least somewhat decent, but I have no idea what's in that warehouse at any given point in time. And if I have product in that warehouse and I've already had my customer do it, they ordered a bunch of stuff they shouldn't have ordered because they didn't know I already had it in the warehouse. And I said to the gentleman, it's your product. It's yours. Do whatever you want with it. I didn't know you had it, Kevin. That, that's all that, that, that there's, there's a huge problem here. We're overwatering. I'm recycling a whole bunch of stuff that's been sitting outside for, I don't know how long, longer than I've been here. I've only been, excuse me, here a year. It's like, why is it sitting there? Well, people overordered. There's another problem, right? We're not focused 
And this is not, this is just infrastructure. This is not network, right? Network is is managed a little bit better because of the cost. Infrastructure becomes consumable and waste, but I still have to manage all of these bits and pieces. So that's one thing I'm I'm looking to hopefully correct with Asset View here is looking at how how do I get a cloud-based solution that can show me what material is where. I don't don't care about theft. I don't necessarily care about theft. Nobody wants to steal a rack. People are really interested in stealing overhead conveyance. My my tools, their hand tools are locked in a, in a container. So I'm, I'm not concerned about that. I really want to know what's coming in and what's leaving and what is it for, right? I know this is for MDFA. I have all this equipment. I can tag it in such a way that when it leaves, it breaks that threshold of the warehouse and disappears. I already know it's disappeared because somebody's recorded to me that that's going to MDFA. Now I know that product's coming over into MDFA. My text in MDFA can scan it there. Now I've received it at the location it needs to be. Right now we're not doing that and we need to. And I think and I'm not the only, and I do not stand alone. There are many, many of us out here who are having the same problem, just just in the physical asset world, just just you know, the material Kevin, alone. In my experience, in particular with you, you're a very structured person. The standards are, are, are something that you live by, right? I've found that often you've got two types of people, either people just ignore it completely. And, and then the people that adopt that and, and, and actually contribute to the success of an organization through those standards, right? How do you see that these days? And, and is it changing in this world of the hyperscale facilities or is it improved? I, I kind of think it's both and I've changed as well. I've, I've co-authored a bunch of white papers for TIA. I, I like the TIA standard, for example, but I learned over the years that I cannot do everything TIA says I need to do. It's cost prohibitive, right? In a typical hyperscale, that's half a million square feet you're going to have close to 150,000 patch leads, fiber patch leads, right? How do I label every patch lead? You know, the TIA standard says every patch lead must have A and Z side on it. Well, at some point, I, and even in my previous life, I, st- I just stopped labeling patch leads. I, I had a database knowing where they were. I may lose my lead inside a patch panel. I know you can get smart panels. I've tested them. They're pretty cool, but it's another database you have to manage. I know from Mac to Mac, I know for, I can log into a switch and I can, I can look up where this thing's going, this port, and I can pinpoint where it is. So I know that's the cable. I know what it's going to. So we got to the point, and even in the hyperscales, we're not following that standards to the letter anymore. We're backing down. Some of the hyperscalers implemented Bixie standards. I'm not so sure I agree with that. Bixie is great for RCDD and other things outside plant. I'm not so sure they're a data center-centric installer type training. They have some stuff. But I read a fantastic book and I can't think of the author's name. It's an Indian fellow, so I can't even pronounce his name. But the book was called The Breaking of Bad Habits. And he got me thinking. He, he started attacking industry standards and benchmarking. And he said, there, one thing he stressed out to me, and I, I learned in that book was, just because it's an industry standard or just because it's a benchmark doesn't mean you should implement it in your company. You need to take a step back and say, well, I get a bunch of short-term gain from this, but long-term pain. But you have to really start reverse engineering the benchmark and reverse engineering the standard that you think you might want to implement. Maybe it's not right for your culture. Maybe it's not right for what you're doing today. Maybe it was right 10 years ago. Maybe people are changing. I, I think we have to be careful. I think industry standards are good foundational areas to look. I really do. But I think as a company, you have to decide and have to figure out, reverse engineer this standard. Does it make sense for me and what I'm trying to do, where I'm going to go, my culture, what my future looks like? I don't want to have a bunch of short-term gain only to get this long-term pain because it just, it just reversed on me. So he, he actually got me thinking uh, that I like to reevaluate them. But I, I, the, the, the standards are still good. I mean, you do a mechanical electrical, right? 
you're, you're pretty much, there's only so many ways you can design electrical mechanical data centers, right? You are going to stick to those standards and you are going to stick to those codes because they work, they're smart, they're really not going to change. But from the technology perspective, maybe we do things somewhat differently. Maybe we don't have to label as much. Years ago in the pops, we used to stitch all of our, our, our cabling and, and the stitching was absolutely magnificent looking. But as you started to break down the labor cost to stitch a full data center of copper cabling, it, was, it became cost prohibitive. It's like, why are we doing it? So that was a standard that actually faded, but it was a standard that was adhered to all over the country. And eventually that faded out. And, I, and you're going to see that as, as we grow and learn, some standards will, will go to the wayside. People want to get a return on their investment. They don't want to wait. They don't want to see a whole lot of your, your, your huge cost is labor. So you don't want to see a lot of labor involved. They're running around putting a label on. You know, and then one of the reasons I got rid of the, 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 all the, the patch labels is every time I watched a tech go to where he's supposed to go, he would read the label, then he would trace the cable. That sounds like, well, and I say, why are you tracing the, tracing the label? He goes, I didn't put the label on. I don't trust it. So that, that, so it started this whole thing of, well, then why am I labeling it? Man? Why don't I just create a database? And if they're going to trace it anyway, what's the purpose of a label? So things change in, in that regard with cabling and infrastructure. I, I, I think a lot of things will always be the same, mechanical, electrical. Racks are changing. There's, there used to be a standard four-post rack, standard two-post rack. That's all changed. Now with hot aisle containment, we're, we're changing those. With the grounding, it used to be you had to drill a hole or, or, or do something to a rack to put a ground on it. Now the manufacturers are putting the ground right on there for you. Just attach it. They're actually putting, some of them are putting a screw so you can immediately attach your, your static guard on there for the wrist, wrist static guard or connect your boot. They're, they, they're changing a lot as, as we, we get older and smarter. We're finding better ways to do things. And there'll always will be standards of some sort. But I would stress to people, make sure it's the right standard for you. Yeah, and no, that's a great point. And, and you need to consider in a large enterprise what the impact is to the other organizations that you interface with. Yeah, that's correct. You really need to understand that whole process. And not enough companies, in my experience, really go through the effort to do that. And that's where a lot of things fall through because they don't understand the impact of what they're asking for. And at the end of the day, it's kind of like I've always used the red car analogy. I, I say I want a red car and I get a convertible and a stick shift and I didn't want a convertible and I can't drive a stick, but I got what I asked for, right? <laughs> got a red car. That's I got a red car. I got a red yeah. car. So yeah, that's really interesting. Are you building on, on, on raised floors still or, or are you building on a slab? Mostly slab. I don't see, I, I, the colos you're going to see raised floor because of the buildings, the ceiling heights. In the hyperscale world, they're building them with taking that cost out of it. You simply don't need it. And the downflows are in the ceilings coming down. It cools fine. Like the, the industry went back with a standard. Years ago, I thought about temperatures. I said, why are we so cold? We don't have to be this cold. The equipment doesn't care. The equipment only cares about extremes, going from hot to cold, cold to hot. If you keep a constant, like the data centers I'm in now, 78, some, I think Google's doing 80 degrees. So you don't, those standards have changed, but you don't need a raised floor anymore. That, that was... A lot of that was done with ceiling heights, that the crack units they're buying, they're, they're doing more overhead stuff now. I think it's better. I think it's smarter than, than trying to do raised floor. Plus, it's a huge cost to put a raised floor in, huge cost to maintain that floor. It's harder to clean because now you have to clean above. Then at some point, you got to start taking tiles out, which, reduce, which reduces your pressure. So your air gets reduced and you have to clean under it. So I, I think people finally like got tired of it. And then you would create barrier walls under there if, if, if the downflows could hit some piece and it would start circulating, circling, and it would stop the air from flowing directly. So you hit all of that stuff. So I think now with an open, open canvas, if you will, I think it's better cooling. So 
So yeah, yeah. Well, plus if it's repeatable, right? A lot more things are coming in with with a standard look. The racks come in full of equipment these days. It makes it a lot easier to manage in the data center, right? That's you talk correct. about the cleaning, and I, I saw a. Well, it was funny to me anyway, a, a video on LinkedIn the other day of a new cleaning technique in the data center, which was a guy that looked like he had a power washer cleaning the equipment. And I just thought, well, how's that going to go over? It's different, but it I've was not air. Seen that. It was air. It wasn't <laughs> water. But when you see it, I know you're, um, your head will spin off your shoulders because <laughs> would work for you, right? Hey, let me ask you, with, with all the equipment coming in, the challenges managing that and everything, does that affect, how does that affect the decom process? I think it varies. I'm doing it what's known as a retrofit. How am I going to answer that question? So the decom process, are you, are you what, what is the question? Can you expand more on that? Is it, is it, how am I decomming equipment and bringing new in or? Well, as a customer, right? When you are an end user, you're concerned with decomming the equipment and obviously then ensuring that equipment is wiped clean and, and those type of things. From a, from a provider standpoint, you're looking at the infrastructure and you're not so concerned with the data that's on the equipment, unless you're responsible for that data, right? We see a lot of people today, for example, that take disk drives out of their equipment and they've been looking for a solution to track that because it's sensitive information, right? So we had actually couldn't find a solution. We had to engineer a solution for that type of, of thing. It's one challenge from a decom standpoint, but the other is just how much equipment is coming, how much is going and, and how do I know how that's affecting my environment, right? Is that a formal process in, in most of these companies today? Oh, I think, I think, I think it's formal. Going back to my, my capital markets days, we shredded everything. People purposely outbid others to buy my equipment just to see if I didn't erase my drives, right? So <laughs> we got to a point where we were shredding all of that. It's still a five-year mark. Uh, yeah. Most hyperscalers are still doing the five-year mark where they'll do a refresh. I'm not involved in, in the decomming of their equipment. We're involved of helping them decom it, involved in, in helping them remove it. Uh, as to what they do afterwards, I don't know. In the case of a lot of the hyperscales, you have an incredible amount of private information, personal information that cannot get out. I personally would hope they shred the drives. They probably don't because of the costs. So I think they would stick again. We'll go back to the standards, the standard of seven, seven times wipe to put seven times zero on top, zeros and zeros and zeros and zeros and zeros. So you bury the data that it makes it incredibly difficult, sometimes maybe impossible to pull the old data out. One of the things we used to do with our, our EMC arrays is we would erase them and we'd walk in there and we'd start switching the drives all around <laughs> because we knew it, it, it goes like a stripe. It goes, it has to go a very certain way. Not all the data is on one drive. You need multiple drives to pick up the data. So if we took everything out of order, we knew it was virtually impossible for somebody to put them back in order. And we did that after we wiped this. We went that extra step, probably paranoid. But we would do it and laugh at ourselves for doing it, but that's what we would do. I'm not that heavily involved in the decom of the asset much anymore Yeah, from what I'm doing today. You talk, you talk about that and it reminds me of the days when we, we were consuming as representatives of the data center, if you will, and understanding the power and how that translates to cooling and everything else and the cost ultimately with that equipment running that's no longer being used can cost a significant amount in the data center. Sure. Right? And if nobody's watching that, you know, that could be a real problem. I think today it's much better. We rely a lot on our tools, although, you know, sometimes we talk about tools and they're misunderstood. Like you talk about tools that will collect information on the network or for assets, for example, right? But it doesn't capture the 30% of your equipment that, that might not be on the network and it doesn't capture physical locations and things like that. Well, well I, it, it, go ahead. 
but it, that, it captures information that's critical to your environment, right? So you need to sometimes use multiple tools and, and, and cobble them together to accomplish the, the objectives that you're looking to accomplish, right? Yeah, um, I, I agree. Back, back in the day, it was, it was SolarWinds, well, not back in the day, still the SolarWinds, Zabbix was your, was, your, was your server monitor. SolarWinds was your network. And, and you can monitor it that way using other tools. And the, the trick was always to bring it into some kind of like a, like a I was going to say Netflix. It's not Netflix. I'll think of the word. It's an open source product that gives you a, a single window page, single, single window pane to bring this information into one place. Because the problem you have with all these tools is they're all separated. And, and they like, like NetCool would be a product as a front-end product that, that brings everything together and visualizes it. What you're seeing in hyperscale, though, is a software-defined network. And we're seeing more and more of SDNs throughout, even, even in smaller form factors. Back in the day, you did, well, they're still using it, three-tier network, which is your access from your, at your rack, your distribution, and your core. Now we're seeing leaf and spine, which is much more simplified with a fabric that determines the path you're going to take. And then with software-defined network, everything now is a cluster. So this top of rack switch really isn't a network switch anymore. It's a server. It's part of a cluster. So I have, I have switch A, B, C, and D. It used to be, if, if, if everything wasn't software-defined or in line, if A failed, C and D was held up waiting. Now we had a catastrophic event. Now, if, if A fails, C, B, C, and D doesn't care because they don't, B, C, and D doesn't even know it exists. It's just part of it. It's just another server. We just whack it. But it's funny. In a lot of the hyperscales, you know, AWS, Oracle, Azure, Meta, a, a top rack switch can fail or a core switch can fail. Spine switch can fail, maybe. We'll use top of rack. And the, the software is, de is designed to go in to see if it can fix it. And it does it without intervention. Nobody has to be involved in it. It, it goes, it looks at it, and it says, okay, I don't understand. I'm going to wipe you clean and I'm going to rebuild you. And it does it. Still doesn't work. It whacks it. It just kills it. Takes it out. A ticket's generated. Maybe five days later, we'll change it out. It's not that deep of a concern. There's no catastrophic offense. Same with all your servers and databases. It's software defined, so they have a better understanding of what's being used, what's going on. And it's, you're not seeing it really in the hyperscale. I think in the, in the private industry, yeah, you're still seeing that problem. They don't understand their dependencies. They don't understand it was, and, and we've joked about it. Nobody, nobody's claiming it turned off. See what happens. <laughs> Nobody wants to turn it off. Like they're, they're terrified that something's going to go, go haywire. I think in, in the private industry, I think they still have these issues, but if they use their tools correctly and, you know, in a lot of, a lot of ways you can create your own, your, your own in-house tools, if you will, scripting to understand the total usage of the CPU. That's the key. Is the CPU being used? The CPU is not being used. You can pretty much whack it. Nothing's using it anymore. There's just different things you can do in different tools, but somebody has to monitor in your hyperscale scenario in software to find, you don't need a network operations center anymore. You need a network group that monitors things that gets alerted very specifically. You design how you want to be alerted that something's going wrong. You'll, you'll, then the human gets involved, but otherwise software defined can handle a lot of these things for you. And it's just clusters and clusters of servers. And you can be in a high, and, and, and like an AWS, you can be in this database one day and in this database the next day, and you as a customer will never know, and you really don't care. That's, that's AWS moving you around. And then like, we wouldn't do a firmware upgrade while a customer's on it. You would simply move that customer, do the, take the unit out, take it back to the shop, do the firmware upgrade, then put it back into the cycle we put back in again. This way, the firmware cannot affect the customer because firmware upgrades can, can do that. That doesn't affect it. Say, I think the same with, with decommissioning and hyperscalers, I think they've gotten it down because they have the tools. Some of them are much proprietary. Some of them are, are just software-defined standard network stuff that turns everything into a server so it can see everything at once and, and, and manage it. In, in the corporate world, I, I think you're still seeing it. I'm not as privy as I used to be to that. We had 
back, as you know, back in the day, we had massive problems with trying to understand dependencies, trying to understand the scripting, who scripted, why they scripted it. There was no database, you know, they call a CMDB, configuration management database that you want everything in. You want definitions. You want to know what this script does. And you can't, there was a lot, and back not 10, 15 years ago, there were a lot of cowboys who would just write scripts and that's it. Nobody, nobody even knew the script was written and nobody knows what this thing does. And when it breaks, you have a catastrophic event. So I think it's, I think in, in the usage of the equipment, I think we've gotten a lot better. I think there's a lot better tools. It's a lot better front ends. NetXMS was what I was thinking. I was going to say Netflix. That, that XMS is a, is a, a, a open source tool that really went after Netcool. Netcool is very expensive, very good product. I'm big on open source and open stack. I'm, I'm really big on, I think that's our future. I think we need to get there more and more. And I, I was like that product. I was able to bring everything into one window pane where, where individuals could watch for those who still use network operations centers and help desk and all that. You need some, you need a single window pane to, to view. And then you manage how you're going to be alerted. And then it can find, if you have the right tools, it'll find low CPU usage. If you ever see low CPU usage, you need to go investigate. What is this, what is this thing doing? You know, that's, that's when VM came into play, right? If I have seven windows servers, all right. And they're each doing seven to 8% usage. Why do I have seven pieces of metal? Why not put them all in one metal? He's a bunch of VM, like cut our costs down. That, that all, so the tools were there. People have to embrace them. And then you hit CEOs who just don't want to spend money. So that's part of your problem there. Everything's about money in the end. They just don't want to spend the money either. So I see that as well. Well, and it's particularly a challenge given a economy that is in a downturn, right? We've, we've recently yeah. come through a pandemic. How, how has that affected your budgets and things that you're doing? I mean, it, it, you're still growing, right? Well, we're still growing. There was a lot of going back and forth with the customer, who's paying for what. It was like, okay, you're going to lay these people, although we can't lay them off, then you've got to help me pay them. It was, it was, it was, they, we all did it in the data center world. If we, we had skeleton crews in there. Everybody wore masks. There was hand gel everywhere, <laughs> you know, but a lot of people who could work offsite worked offsite, but we had to have crews in there. We had to expand and as, and, and we, we had to pay these folks. So it was a combination of, of negotiating with the customers. How are we going to do this? You know, the pandemic's pandemic, the pandemic is not over. It's, it's still out there. It's still going to, it's still come, can be bad, but we've created hit teams. We know we're, we're prepared for it better. And it is more of a skeleton crew. So a whole lot of people either get laid off or we pay and hold and wait for the, for an outbreak to, to cease. There, there's different ways of doing this, but the customers are very cognizant of that. You know, I say, if I lay these people off, I may not get them back. And now that we're at this point where the economy is, is what it is, I, I, I can't afford to lose people because as always, labor is my, my most important key in a data center. It's funny. It's not like you can leave high school and go to this trade school and learn data centers. You can to fix a car. You can to you can go join the army to learn how to fix aircraft and trucks and all these different things, right? You, you, you can't go to college to learn how to be a, a, a technician in data centers. And then to find these people, I've got to have career paths. You know, some people, like, like a person would work in a help desk because eventually they wanted to be a network operations center engineer. Then eventually from a network operations center, they wanted to be a network engineer. There was this pathway that we took and we built for folks. And data centers, I got to try to do the same thing. There are some people who want to be techs the rest of their lives and they love it. And, and, and that's, that's fantastic. I'll, I'll support them, give them what they need. A lot of techs who come in who have expectations. I'm an hyperscaler, man. I, I want to I wanna do this. I want to do this. All this tech is here. And, I, and that's right. And we got to find ways to get them educated, whether it's boot camps. I'm, I'm with a very a, a, a project management oriented company and I'm a PMP. So I'm pushing the PMI Institute because that's a great standard. <laughs> it's a methodology. 
that I, I think is really, really well done. It started in the 60s and a whole bunch of PhDs created it and the PhDs constantly change it. I think that's what I like about it. They're, they're changing. They're not written in stone. Nothing is. And, and it's a great organization that I'm bringing to help, help guide my project managers. And then I have my, my assistant project managers, my project controllers, and I have all these techs. But I'm trying to find ways to get my techs more interested in trying to, so we do a thing called Know Your Customer. I started it at a previous company. I forced my network operations center engineers to do financial classes and they were so mad at me. They were just infuriated with me, right? Within six months, they were asking for more. They, they didn't realize, realize how financially intolerant they really were. They didn't realize actually how much fun it is. And then they started making money on the markets because they, they started understanding investing more. And I said, well, you work for an investment firm. Go talk to the front office guys, right? So they got into it. We're starting the same thing here. Know your customer. I see guys plugging things in. I say, what are you plugging in? I don't know the worksheet just says to plug it in here. What does it do? Well, I don't know. To me, that's bad, right? You, you should know what this thing does. You, you should have a basic understanding of what this device does. What is its purpose? And why are you connecting it up? And it's not proprietary. This is not proprietary information that, that we're giving out. So we're doing a know your customer routine here with the network gurus. We want to sit down and start teaching people, what does this thing do? And get them interested. Then we're going to, our goal was actually to go further, 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 further. And it was a voluntary thing. We weren't going to pay people. So you can come to this class. It's after work. We'll do it on site. Voluntary. We knew towards the end, maybe two or three people would be left. Those are the people we might say, I want to send you to a network boot camp. Are you interested? They stayed that long. So we're looking at doing things that way. We're looking at how we educate internally more. We're building an educational program here where we can get not only management trained, but we want our technicians trained. But I think, I think that's the key to retaining really, really good people. Let them know that they have a path. If that's what they want, if they want this path, how do I get them to that path? There's only so far I can go, but I'm willing to go that path with them. I'm willing to try to get them there. That's an excellent point, Kevin. I think that that's right on point. You've made so many interesting points here. I know we're coming up on time. I can't tell you how much I, I appreciate it. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about we, we haven't addressed in the data centers in terms of what keeps you up at night? And what, what's the next big step that you see us taking in, in that realm that that, that may drive additional changes? Well, now that I've gotten older, nothing keeps me up. I, I, I've been able to get that out of my head. <laughs> plus, plus they have these things called a sleeping pill. No, I'm kidding. Nothing really much keeps me up. I, I think it's conflict sometimes keeps me up at night when you get conflict with people and you can't seem to find a way to solve it. And sometimes people are unreasonable. It's always the human emotions and stuff like that. I think for data centers, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the hyperscales change with the edge. The edge is, is it. Ed, edge is everything today. It's the last, you know, uh, this is, this is your, this is your last mile. This is not the edge. I've heard people, I, I've watched people hold their phone up and say, this is the edge. And I start laughing like, no, you're not the edge. You're the user. You're the end user. But I'm interested to see, like I have, I'm in New Mexico and I have 5G on my phone and I laugh. There's no 5G here, right? It's just, it's, it's just marketing nonsense. 5G, they, I think AT&T called a 5GE, 5GE, 5G evolution which means marketing. It's not here yet because your RANs, your radio access networks are still off, most of them are 4G and it's a small millimeter wave. So it's, we, we started looking at this a lot. There's some really good stuff out there about smart buildings. Smart buildings aren't there yet. There's, there's, there's a ways to go, but it, it, it's going to happen. You're going to see very, very smart buildings. You're going to see smart cities. They're, they're building some of these now out in China, I think, where, where roads, you put stuff down on the road and you can produce electricity just by cars driving over. There's a lot of neat ideas the problem is return on investment and how do I get my money back? And people aren't going to invest in it yet. Since it's a small millimeter wave, this is why you see Wi-Fi 6 and 7 out. Because nobody's going to put all these radios in a tower. 
for every office, right? It's not going to happen. That's why you, you put them maybe in the lobby area and then everybody switches over to Wi-Fi 6 and 7, which is 5G compliant. Now we've got more and more stuff going on. I don't have to buy all them. I think the edge is something we all need to watch. I think it's fascinating. I think the millimeter, millimeter wave is, is absolutely fascinating. We've learned that it can't penetrate walls. It can't penetrate windows like, it, like 4G does today. That's why Wi-Fi will be used more. That's why you're seeing the phones force you onto Wi-Fi as fast as they can. They, they slow down. It doesn't work. You have to connect to Wi-Fi and things just pop and work because it's, it's, it's how it's going to happen. I just think it's going to be fascinating for real-time application. You know, one of the things you used to say is the farmer out there, he wants to know what his PhD, his pH level in the soil is. He wants to know what his moisture content in the soil is. He wants to know what's the moisture in the air. He's going to have all that. They have the Internet of Things that does that but it has to go back to the hyperscale. The hyperscale has to process it, bring it back. We want it done on the edge. And what does the edge mean? Is it all these small boxes all over the place? Is it in every, every residence? Is it, is, what is it going to be, right? What is the edge going to be where we can get real-time application where you're not waiting anymore? He immediately sees everything he wants to see about his soil, his air, his crops. Same thing with, with any other industry. It's this real-time application. I think it's going to be fascinating. How does AI tie into that? AI keeps me up at night. That's what it was. You know, <laughs> you, you remember Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. You know, we wonder, like, where, where is this going? I mean, AI is fascinating, but it's also kind of scary. Because we, sure we really don't know where this is going. We see all this misinformation out there and, and fake videos, which is kind of freaky, what they can do today. And there's some interesting people coming out with ways to tag fake narratives or, or false, false AI-created videos. Because they leave us some sort of a tag, some sort of a footprint. And they're spotting that footprint, and then they have a way now that they can tag it. They can display immediately, this is fake. This is, this is not, not real. That's incredibly important in today's world where we've got to really contain the information that is just out of control. That, that, that worries me. It's all coming from data centers. So data centers have to be involved. The hyperscalers have to be involved. I think, unfortunately, the government, not unfortunately, but the government's going to have to be involved. We have to start getting a handle on this and we have to stop all, all, the, all the, the false lies that, are, that IT is generating through AI and through other, other means. And uh, hopefully it's going to happen. I just don't know if it's going to happen fast enough. I sometimes wonder. So actually that, that does make me worry at night. Yeah. Yep. I think you bring up some, some great points, interesting points for, for maybe some future conversations and things. We'd love so. to, yeah. You know, it's, it's, those, those, those are things that are definitely going to happen. We just, we don't quite understand exactly how they're going to manifest themselves, but We'd like to stay on top of that and, and, and stay in front of the curve if we can. I think you and I have always been that type of person. And, yep. you know, I really appreciate you taking the time because you're very busy to do this. And the conversation is always fascinating with you. You, you, you yeah, take it you. to the lengths that many people can. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Great seeing you again, Gary. Yep. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Always great, Kevin. And hopefully All we'll right. talk. Right, okay, great. Bye.